This episode of Untold Stories is sponsored by Coin Gaming, Kava Labs, and Nexo. Stick around to hear more about them later in this episode. It's so good to be back in the chair today, actually. I've been out of the chair for like a week or two. I haven't been feeling well, so it's really good to be back. And with someone who I now consider a friend, we have a lot of mutual friends before, and we've been speaking, Adam Goldman. Thank you so much for coming on Untold Stories, and I am your host, Charlie Schramm. You are listening and watching Untold Stories, where twice a week we get to dive deep with some of crypto's coolest people, the brightest crayons in the box, and the sharpest tools in the shed to really understand where we're going. And to really understand where we're going, we have to know where we're coming from. By the way, I think there's another podcast that stole that ad from me, that little thing that I made up about like how we have to know where we're coming from to know where we're going. I heard an NPR podcast, literally word for word. I'm going to find out who you are, or I'm going to take your lines. But Adam Goldman, thank you so much for coming on Untold Stories today. I love it. How's your day going? Awesome. Charlie, thanks for having me on. Uh, as you sort of mentioned as well, uh, it's great to be on. And, and also, uh, you know, considering you as one of my uh, crypto heroes, uh, sort of Growing up in my crypto journey, I also consider you a, a good friend as well, and I'm, I'm very happy to be on and, and shoot the shit with you. Yeah, awesome. This is like, and that's like the perfect way to describe. It always like starts off shooting the ship, then it, go, it goes into these like deeper conversations. Adam, you're the co-founder of Bitbuy.ca, and I'm going to emphasize the CA because I like to call you. Well, I privately would talk to our mutual friends as you're the, you're the king of Canadian crypto. And we're going to talk about today why some of the most important projects have started in Canada, why the the, the socioeconomic and, and like mental uh, psyche that that Canadians have grown up with have really that follow the ethos of crypto. In that, I feel like crypto folk, we believe that we have a moral obligation to to leave the world in a better place, and there's like a, a social layer that we believe. We need to have, and the only way to do that is not by government, but more of like uh, giving people the tools and the software and the uh, level playing field to be able to make their wealth or put fat food on their table and do all these different things. So there's like that common, there's that common thread. Whereas I feel like a lot of people that I talk to, unfortunately, like where I grew up in in, in New York, and not to, like. It's more of like all or nothing. It's for ourselves and we're going to push forward and we're going to we're going to, you know, leave people behind. And I don't really like that. And it's not really like a good way to live. Yeah, um, you know, definitely that is certainly in line with a lot of um, ethos that 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 Canada can have or Canadians have. Um, you know, we take great pride um, up here in many national things we do, whether it's our uh, uh, claim to the crown on being the best hockey players in the world um, or other notable endeavors that have come out of the country. Um, specifically, as it relates to crypto, I think it kind of begins before that with technology. And Canada's always been a hub for some groundbreaking and some world-breaking technologies all the way back to the 50s uh, with nuclear reactor technology and up through the 60s and 70s with some military technologies. And then, of course, my favorite was uh, a globally known company called Nortel Networks, uh, which managed to become the global leader in telecommunications networks, rails, technologies, and things like that. 
Um, so there's definitely a, um, and then Ethereum too. Yeah. And then, so, so, so yeah, that's sort of where I end that. And, you know, I always love to reiterate that Toronto and and Canada is the birthplace of Ethereum. And so, um, you know, that's, um, that's definitely one of the claims to fame that actually a lot of Canadians from the early days will tell you, you know, Canada initially in the early days of crypto was seen as one of the global blockchain crypto startup hubs in the world. Um, our proximity to the United States was great, but of course, being in a different jurisdiction gave us uh, a little bit more uh, freedom, if you will, um, more centered on the lack of guidance and the the sort of new uh, technology that was learning to be discovered by regulators, governments, banks, etc. Um, but yeah, I would say um, Canada has always had that sort of technological fostering ability up here, um, you know, and it's heavily influenced by uh, by our brothers and sisters in the south. Why do you think that is, in some countries, the way, not just regulators, but all government institutions will look at an industry or technology could be so fundamentally different than other countries? I think um, maybe it probably could be best classified as asking the question, who benefits, right? And so I think um, when that question is asked, depending on how free said nation is, I think is where the concerns will be highlighted. And it's kind of interesting you bring that up. I think back to another Canadian story where that became an issue pre-crypto is, you know, BlackBerry at one point was the global leader in smartphone communications and BBM Messenger, and it was just everywhere around the world. And so, of course, other nations around the world wanted to deploy this at the government levels, at the military levels, et cetera. And when BlackBerry went out to these countries, a lot of them had these uh, caveats and restrictions that said, hey, um, can you effectively violate this right that you don't violate in North America um, for us? Because we have X, Y, Z concern. We have X, Y, Z risk. Um, we we, we sure. have concern over who benefits. Um, so, yeah, I, I would definitely say uh, that's one of the top things. And, and really, it sort of boils down to how free we are. Right. So in North America, you know, land of the free, home of the brave, we like to build and create. And, and, and I think, um, obviously, from that perspective, everybody in crypto who's been in the United States or North America or, or any of those Western worlds has benefited positively, uh, positively from being able to um, not be bothered or not be hindered while trying to pilot something in this new space. Well, yeah, it shouldn't be as a surprise to anyone that crypto really like, like I don't say crypto, but like Bitcoin itself and, and or like social crypto, you know, mm-hmm. really was founded in Canada because and I and I never really thought about this way that Canada has always been this warrior for uh, technology, social good. If you look at just the war with the the, the firing shots of, of Huawei, you know, it was Canada, not the U.S. who did it. You look sure. at the first laws about privacy and cookies, and it was another big one. It was too, is something to do with, with advertising and the internet and, and how our technologies encrypt and everything. It started as on a Canada federal law. Mm-hmm. So uh, when does that kind of like go back? When do you think that started? Um, I think basically, and, and interestingly enough, back to sort of asking the question about it, um, you know, it, it's kind of flippy floppy when it comes to who's going to follow suit between Canada and the United States. And there's many examples to which the United States will take a lead and Canada will follow and then vice versa, of course, with, which is what you're mentioning. Yeah. So I think, um, you know, just in terms of maybe statistical figures, for example, you know, the size of the market, the size of the landscape, the size of the government, and you know, being the size of, let's say, one United State. Um, it, uh, it certainly does give off the ability to move a little bit more nimble, uh, in a nimble fashion or be a little bit more agile. And so I would say, um, because we had a lot of, um, like when you look at the population of Can- population of Canada, most 
um, dense centers are centered around very close proximity to the border with the United States. So in 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 BC, uh, in Quebec, yeah, in Ontario as well. Yes, yeah, so overlap here. too. Correct. And so so I would say that um, you know there's there's such heavy cross influence that you know while that discussion had been been debated uh, over many states in the United States and had gone up through various Supreme Court cases in certain instances regarding privacy and reasonable expectations of privacy. I think um, that sort of historical landscape allowed um, Canadians to sort of look at it and go, you know what, uh, they haven't figured these things out, but they've effectively started to be started to ask all the questions that we need to answer. And so with respect to privacy and encryption and sort of our forward thinking approach up here in Canada, I would say a lot of it is a culmination of you know, the information garnered from south of the border and then simply sort of, um, you know, adjusting it and, and putting it in line with sort of values of Canada and, and, you know, the charter rights and freedoms, the the Bill of Rights and things like that that protect uh, individual liberties for Canadians up here. And, and you know, our thoughts in our head were, were um, very important. And, and I think you could see that in the way, yeah, for example, our political landscape is is slightly different than the United States. It's very different than the United States. It's like for good or for for good or for worse. <laughs> it's sometimes better, sometimes worse. But sometimes, you know, you look up. I remember there was that when like Obama won won the presidency. Everyone's like, "I'm moving to Canada" or something like that. I forgot how st- the stupidity. But you have started multiple startups over the course of a, of a decade, and a lot of um, it's related like IT consultant, IT consulting, and and building financial and technological. Uh, rails and you started bitbuy and bitbuy has become the leading uh, canadian digital currency trading platform and brokerage you offer deep liquidity across like 10 spot trading markets through your otc trading desk and then i also want to talk to you about something a little bit further about your Knox's custody and your one-to-one deposit insurance because you have a quote here you said you want Bitbuy to be the world's first platform to find a way to keep the full value of its Bitcoin cold storage holdings insured, which is a very hard thing to do. Um, you know what, Lo? Why don't we just jump off into that? Like, explain to me your sure. your thinking on that. Sure. So, um, so we had a relationship uh, with this company out of uh, out of Canada, a startup by the name of Knox, who, uh, interestingly enough, had a at the time, I believe the largest seed round raise um, in Canadian startup history at the time it was something oh, like wow. seven and a half or eight million bucks uh, led by Fidelity. And they had a mission to go out and build proprietary HSM technology along with processes and controls that would satisfy the top insurers of the world. So where they're asking, uh, what's my risk exposure on these crypto assets? I don't understand. I can't safeguard them X, Y, Z. Um, Knox basically set out to build an end-to-end solution that would satisfy the box, but not from a on-paper perspective. There is uh, there is an actual super proprietary sort of process that is in conjunction with the technology they developed that basically keeps these assets secure. So what that enabled them to do was was offer their clients who custody at Knox one-to-one insurance while being title on set insurance policies. So it's not an insurance policy for Knox. It's not like a BitGo sort of pooled Lloyd's of London basket. Um, it is directly one to one, and of the assets held under their custody. And you know they've spent probably the better half of two to two and a half to three years 
really trying to iron out the technical elements of why that solution is able to satisfy the risk requirement of a large insurer. And, um, you know, a lot of it has to do with the talent that exists within Psychnox. There's a deep, deep set of, um, you know, uh, engineers and, and high level math um, developers who are able to basically build this technology. And so when it came to market, I mean, it was sort of a no brainer for us. Uh, we're a Canadian company. They were Canadian custodian um, assets being up here in the correct jurisdiction. And then, of course, having that covenant. Uh, was definitely a world first, and we were extremely happy to roll that out. Um, and we we also did not, um, you know, pass up any of those costs to our customers. Um, we felt, in fact, that that would be something that we'd be more than willing to pay for, um, so that Canadian customers would, you know, feel comfortable when they're storing assets on Bitbuy, which is not typically the best practice, of course. You know, be your own bank, not your sure. keys, not your coins, etc. Um, but when you get to this sort of enterprise level. Um, there's really amazing solutions like Knox. So yeah, we were we were extremely happy to onboard with Knox, and then of course safeguard client crypto assets, uh, Bitcoin so specifically. Cool. Yeah. The words Bitcoin and OTC have been together hand in hand since the early days, the early days of time. But like, you know, back history of time. No, but seriously, but. Most people don't know what OTC is. It stands for over-the-counter trading. In fact, sure. um, another fun fact, the uh, first Bitcoin-related IRC chat rooms that were created were Bitcoin, Bitcoin Dev, and Bitcoin OTC. Mm -hmm. Because here, for the first time in the history of the world as we know it, you have a digital scarce finality where you have to deliver the actual asset over the internet and not a derivative of or a iou of or a product of or a representation of or a security of you are delivering the actual asset so from the beginning otc has been the backbone of our industry i remember laying in bed running bit instant when we were doing 20 30 percent of the volume having to trade liquidity remember we're trading the actual asset I'm trading liquidity with the CEO of BitPay, Bitfinex, and some of the others. And here, these are the top companies that are funding the retail whole crypto scene. And we're, we're sitting and we're swapping liquidity because that's how you had to do it back then. There was no custodial back solutions. End. There's no back-end broker-dealer sure. support. There was none of this. We had to custody and supply our own liquidity in real time, and it was impossible. Till today, OTC is not only... Like there, it's bigger. It's it's known now as the most important, one of the most important backbones of our industry. You guys are constantly uh, seeked out for comment on market-related conversations. Almost every company in the space tries and mostly fails to start an OTC desk because they don't know how. They don't know how to provide the support. My question to you, Mr. Adam Goldman, do you think there are more people that believe they own Bitcoin right now than there are in circulation? That's a great question. Um, probably. Yeah, I believe so. I and, strongly believe yeah, so. That's my Yeah, opinion. I mean, I mean, you look at all these new derivatives and products and things like that. And, and, and I would say just based on that alone, absolutely. Um, I also totally agree with you when it comes to OTC being sort of... <laughs> 
effectively the initial organic backend of the entire crypto market. Um, and what I actually love about how that kind of starts is OTC is effectively the Craigslist beginning yeah. of us exchanging liquidity. It is the Kijiji. It's the Craigslist. It's it like, was all oh, handshake too. Yeah. Where's your buddy? It's like, oh, okay, we're good. Close, match, spread, done. Yeah. And then you deliver the asset, as you said. Um, and yeah, I just, I mean, 10 years on, 13 years on, it just never escapes me when I see one of those, uh, like on Twitter, there's that account whale alert where it's always sort of showing you the super large movement sure. between exchanges and providers. And then I see like a $3 billion one and you know, it's from Binance and they do it at 11 PM on a Friday night. And to me, that's just, I mean, that says almost all of it right there. Like you, the, the rest of the world has, has really trying to get hung up on things that stare them right in the face about why. And um, yeah, I think it's uh, absolutely amazing that that we're exchanging and storing and, and and moving this type of value as a protocol on the net. I mean, try go try to move skids of cash, a million dollars of well, cash. Well, so so like traditionally if if a, a company or a government institution organization wants to take a position in something, they want to take a billion dollar position, you know, in a hundred billion dollar thing or, you know, a market cap, trillion dollar market cap now. How does someone like Elon Musk do that? Where if he was doing, if he was trying to scale into an asset and as a hedge fund, you can do that without, you know, uh, uh, screwing up the market in a way because you can get derivatives, you can place options, you can do certain type of orders, you can effectively scale in without sometimes anyone even knowing. But with Bitcoin, you have to take delivery of the actual asset. How do you do that? How do you buy a billion dollars? How does someone buy a billion dollars worth of Bitcoin? Like, what's the process like from a president of an OTC company? So um, usually, basically, what the goal would be, and basically the main, the main reason why you want to sort of offer the OTC versus access to the live market through all of our platforms is, is basically specifically that reason, trying to move into a, a position with such a large value and not have book slips, market move uh, in either direction. Um, and so I would say that maybe Elon Musk is kind of the asterisk in the box okay, and that, asterisk, that, yeah. that he, but I understand the point that, you know, how does an, how does an enterprise fortune 500 company that large do that? Um, you know, this is where sort of the beauty of the adoption that we're seeing today in this cycle exists. I mean, the institutional business that is being driven up is absolutely insane. And we see that here as well. We have lots of demand for publicly traded companies, private firms, um, investment managers and advisors all looking to get access to these markets. And of course, when they get further and more granular into how does it work, those are some of the top questions. How do we make sure that we're getting you know tight spreads, deep liquidity and whatnot? But then again, this will lead me right back to what you're saying about the OTC conversation is that there is still in the world of the crypto markets and all of the liquidity of the crypto markets, like a massive dark pool market, uh, prime brokerage type market that exists way behind a lot of the public facing and retail facing desks and platforms. And so I think when it comes to the micro strategies and the Teslas, and I heard another rumor that Oracle might be the next next one to jump I on. I wouldn't ship. be surprised, yeah. Yeah, I, I think I think you know they're contacting desks like ours. They're uh, identifying the type of size that they want to go in, and then it's strategically up to the desk to then source the liquidity throughout the global crypto liquidity markets 
And given the fact that the top institutional players um, sort of have that back end that maybe didn't exist five or 10 years ago, it's, uh, it's not as hard as it once was to get that type of exposure and not tilt or flash crash the market in any particular way. And then another thing I think is, you know, just on sort of basic economics and investing, um, you know, you look at the way that, you know, Mr. Saylor went in uh, with his assets and, and it was more of an average type play. And yeah. even though his initial purchase was very big and uh, amounting to that whole balance sheet, I mean, he most recently bought like 5 million and then 12 million before. And those seem That's like the immaterial. Best way to do it. Yeah. And, and 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 those seem like immaterial amounts in comparison, but it's actually not because the whole strategy is accumulation of BTC um, on a long term realm. And so, yeah, I believe what's that, so crazy you know, is that the amounts that they're buying, like I'll see like a thousand Bitcoin, you know, and that's like a huge yep. amount of money. Like, I don't know how much money is that. It depends mm-hmm. on the day that, we're, that this episode gets sure. released. These amounts are like what one customer would buy. On BitInstant. Like my friend the other day was like, hey, Charlie, I remember I bought 3,000 Bitcoin from you. Right. Thank you. As he's like showing me his <laughs> multi-level penthouse. Uh, beautiful. <laughs> and penthouse. now I'll never see you for another 10 years. <laughs> the only thing better than making money yourself is when you can make a lot of people a lot of money around the world. And then you just travel and they just, they're so happy. Everyone's so happy all the time. It's yeah. great. Car- Charlie, come stay with me. Yeah, exactly. Come and hang out. <laughs> do you, do you, um. You're, I'm, I'm 30. I'm, I think you're, we're like around the same age. Um, we both started when we were very, very young. So I can't ask this question a lot. So I'm going to ask it because do you have any good advice for young startup entrepreneurs? It's such a, such a great question that I can't ask enough. Sure. Um, I think, uh, it really comes down to a few basic things that a lot of people don't really want to admit or realize. Uh, and of course this wisdom came down from my grandfather. And he always said to me, even in the beginning, uh, when he didn't understand Bitcoin, he got maybe burned a little bit on some crypto plays and some investments. Um, but I personally never wanted to give up on it. And I think basically, if you work hard, if you stick with it, and you have patience, I think the law of the universe will reward you. And that's irrespective of crypto or technology or anything. Because when you look at all these stories, most of the success stories begin with a bunch of people telling the initial person they're wrong, they're crazy, it's never going to work. That person then fails three or four or five or 10 times. Um, and if they had truly believed what they set out to do and they stuck with it, they'll be rewarded in the end. And I think that's what's happened to a lot of um, the hardworking yeah, people in crypto. I mean, Charlie, you you worked as hard as you ever could to be who you are and where you are. And I would say, the exact same thing for myself. And I would just say that not giving up and getting off the horse is the biggest piece of advice. All right, guys. So with a pretty crazy chaotic year behind us, we've got 200 reasons to put your Bitcoin to the test, courtesy of my friends at BitCasino. And I've gotten you an amazing, amazing offer. You have to go to bitcasino.io forward slash shrimp to get it. But all you have to do is wager 5MBTC, small amount, Wager 5 MBTC or more on BitCasino on any slot and you get 200 free spins to their legacy of dead game. You get 200 free spins, 200 spins to win more money for free. And all you have to do is do one slot bet. I love these guys. 
BitCasino was ahead of the crypto game before that game even got going. The original Bitcoin-led online gaming destination, they really, really, really pushed and to continue to set the standard for fun, fast, and fair gameplay because you have the blockchain. You might as well be fair and transparent while you're at it. Deposit, wager, and withdraw in Bitcoin, Ethereum, Tron, Litecoin, so many cryptos, all in real time, all the time with BitCasino. Moving right along. Hey guys, it's Charlie. And remember that time we interviewed Anthony Trenchev from Nexo Finance? Well, they are on a roll right now offering 5.9% APR on your crypto credit. You'll be able to borrow at less than 6% on some of your crypto. They got a savings account that's offering 12% interest a year. And now they have an integrated exchange so you can trade between all your cryptos without ever leaving their integrated wallet. It's so amazing. Make sure you check it out at Nexo.io and start earning interest. Start managing your assets because crypto banking just got real with Nexo. I love that. That's awesome. <laughs> I love Nexo. It's such a great company. I want you guys to take a moment and check out what the folks and my newest sponsors over at Kava Labs are doing. Because up until now, whenever you do anything related to DeFi, like borrowing, lending, uh, loans, bonds, stable coins for Binance, Huobi, Kraken, or all these different places, they actually have been using Kava Labs on the back end. And now you can get those same APYs and those same awesome features that these financial institutions have been getting you can get them too all you have to do is go to kava.io and check it out but on top of that kava and binance working for international women's month have been launching a fifty thousand dollar prize pool that's ending this week all you have to do is go to binance or click the link in my show notes you'll be able to go on there trade a hundred dollars all you do is trade a hundred dollars and you get cards that you're entered into drawings that you can get up to $50,000 a part of a prize pool. Make sure you check them out, kava.io. With all your other projects and all my other projects, and then we get into this, is the major difference here the passion? Whereas like here, you don't need to convince people. Like I found very early on that I was wasting my breath trying to bring people over to the, to the Bitcoin side. Yep. Then all I would have to do is as long as I had my normal Charlie passion and the love for this, eventually people saw it. Some people took some people still text me now. It's like years later and they finally yeah. hey, are, hey, are you still doing that Bitcoin thing? It's like um they see that you're still doing it. And so this advice not only works with with and you can use it in good ways and bad ways, but it's uh and religion has done this and sometimes for the for the negative. When you attach your fervor or your passion, other people see that they want that same and they want to be a part of that. 100%. 100%, Charlie. I am, I definitely am a type of guy who wears my heart on my sleeve um, for better, or for worse. Yeah. And I'm always, I've always been passionate about whatever my interests are. And then specifically on crypto, I think, you know, given when I found it, what I had been interested in generally in terms of macro pictures of the world. And then that convergence with the part of me that is a nerd, um, yeah, it really lit those passions. And and you know, as, as an a, as sort of an addendum to this point, I think that um, you know, my interests beyond technology and crypto are also just history and politics and things like that. And not for any particular reason to get into them, but more from an understanding perspective. And I think the window into history and politics and that macro, and then you watch it converge with 
where we are in the technologies that we have sure. in the internet to new disruptive technologies. Um, I think it's almost a requirement if you want to try to look that long from something or that deep away from something, because the same narrative of what you and I probably used to tell people when we would sell them into Bitcoin is still true today. And it's even more true today, even if it's a type of taboo statement that nobody wants to hear about liberty and conspiracies or central banks or whatever, whatever, it's still true. And so I think, yeah, the, the, the passion, the passion probably comes uh, from, from a, from a uh, understanding that we were able to obtain a lot sooner than a lot of other people. Um, and then of course, when you manifest your passion, you know, people can be drawn to that. And I would say a lot of people in my orbit um, definitely took a chance on that part as well. Just, wow, you're so passionate about this. Why are you so gung-ho and nutty about magic? Someone comes to you and says, like, Adam, Bitcoin is a religion and you're just replacing one for another. How do you respond mm -hmm. to that? That's pretty philosophical. Well, question. do you think it's a positive um, or a negative? Like, do you immediately feel defensive or are you like, yeah, I agree with that? Um, I mean, it, uh, let, uh, rephrase the question again, just so what, I can, uh, I read an article the other day by, uh, Joe Weisenthal. He wrote it for Bloomberg and he was just like yeah. vilifying Bitcoin as a religion. Yeah. And he was sure. Okay. I got your point. And I was like reading this with joy because I'm saying to myself, that's a good thing. What's wrong with people coming together and having a decentralized religion? That's a powerful thing. And, but he wrote it in a ne very negative way. And I'd like to sure. under talk to other Bitcoiners and ask the same question. Sure. Sure. I think, um, I think actually it's interesting that you read that article. I think a couple of weeks ago, looking at a tweet thread between Pomp and Raul Paul, mm. and they were sort of arguing over, um, you know, how, how Bitcoiners and, and a lot of us crypto folk love sort of the, the memery um, and, and the humor and the cynicism uh, of our success and, and comedy and whatnot. Mm. And, you know, Raul is making a great point. Like, you know, you should not be thumbing this in people's noses. You shouldn't be gloating. You shouldn't be all this. And then Pomp is simply responding and, and, and Pomp makes the point accurately. And it's like, you're kind of missing the point about the meme and the humor. And I think this kind of ties a little bit into the religion aspect is that, um, that energy component, which is required in religions. And when you have passion and things like that is actually a much stronger point than he is willing to admit. And that's why his defense against it is, you know, when we say things like have fun staying poor, he's literally taking that, that meme that comes from crypto and, and, and saying it as if we're literally saying to people, have fun staying poor, you ass, like yeah. in a negative way. And that's not what the energy of that meme is supposed to come. And I think I'm just trying to use that as an example. No, it's brilliant. Go, it's brilliant. Yeah. Yeah. That, 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 you know what I would say, you know, yeah, maybe, uh, the Bloomberg article says, you know, the, the negative elements of what religion can do in a negative fashion. But, you know, to your point, like the, the, the half full way to look at that is decentralized religion positive. There's actually more people to share and exchange and yeah. compromise and, and, sh and whatnot. And, and yeah, I, I, I think, um, I think I think if I read that article, I would respond with the the Abe Simpson meme that says "old man yells at Bitcoin," and again, that's the meme yes. of our religion right back in the same point. I completely agree, and so like I would read that. I look, you look at that meme, and it's not like "have fun staying poor, you ass." It's like 
hey, like, look at what we're doing and how we're bringing people out of poverty. Correct. Check this out. Read about it. Don't be so negative. And then, unfortunately, we need to be tongue in cheek to do that. I mean, correct. Go read. Well, that's that, that's the landscape we've been forced to exist in today. If any any reporter would go read on a given day the Bitcoin IRC developer mailing list, they probably think that we're fighting all the time. Of course, but we're not. It's just how we all communicate with each other. Yeah, we're looking back now, and it's like, wait, maybe we should take that a step back. But I don't know. I don't think you so. know. Um, let me add one more point. Um, one thing I've actually noticed, given this the whole new charged political discourse we've been living in for the last, I don't know, eight, 15 years. Um, I would say that one thing I notice about crypto is it's such a unifier and it's such a unifier to the degree that all these different political ideologies can actually come together around crypto and speak about crypto and drop the politics on an agree to disagree. Yeah. And I find that remarkable in such a toxic environment that that we live in. And and I find it so cool because I see all these different subsections of social communities now going full crypto. It has nothing to do with anything other than the same reasons everybody else who loves crypto got into it. The liberty aspects, the freedom aspects, the decentralized aspects, the privacy aspects. Like it's it's amazing. But what it's doing is it's 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 giving bipartisanship in a way where we all want the same things. We just kind of disagreed on how to do that. Yep. And so it's, you're right. It's pretty cool how like, look at where I, the, Florida has a blockchain advisory council. And if you look at who's on it, it's a bunch of elected politicians. The most like, like Democrats, Republicans, completely mm-hmm. opposite. But I'm friends mm-hmm. with a lot of these people. The mayor of Miami's on is on the sure. uh, board, the uh, CFO of the state. I can't call them friends yet because we have, you know, I don't know them well enough, but they're, you know, friendly acquaintances, but I believe they will be soon, Charlie. So yeah, hopefully you talk, I talked to them all and it's like that whole like hostility of the past four years, it just melts away, melts away. And I find that unbelievable in terms of crypto, um, uh, that there's so many things that I think we will actually net benefit as a result of this decentralized technology that will help solve some of these, you know, social issues that seem to plague everybody. Why don't we have a voting block? How come you don't see? We have lobby groups in DC, I'm sure, you know, all over the world you have them. Uh, It's so ironic when it comes back to the lobbying, right? Because it's almost like the ethos of crypto in and of itself is to do away with such you know, middlemen or middle persons or women sure. or whatever. And, um, and uh, you know, I think obviously there's the reality is why there is lobbying that has to exist. There's lobbying everywhere as there should be, because from crypto people in the industry, we have a goal to make those who don't understand, understand, especially if it's a, a, at such detriment to you know, fostering the continued growth of like all of our visions combined, right? Sure. And so obviously the banks need to wake up and the regulators need to wake up and the insurance companies need to wake up. And they all need to stop, you know, poo-poo-pooing and reading Janet Yellen and and Jay Powell and, and, and actually go and read more from the fire hose that has, you know, crypto Twitter is start stage one. I mean, my 65-year-old dad is on crypto Twitter and like he uses it better than I do. Like in terms of like, he's getting all these signals, um, 
Yes, you know, and that's moves. what they're not doing. The biggest yes. fear of the administrations and the economies and the economists of today is that they're reading and making policy based on their view that it's single humans and committees that make decisions for the betterment of said economies. But really, the way the world, they should be reading the books and following Twitter and seeing that, no, these are masses like oceans and these masses of people cycle and we move and our money moves with it. It's unbelievable. And sometimes you can't control that. And then when you try to control it and you can't, it fucks it up even more. Mm -hmm. And more people get poor. That's what we see. <laughs> people will look at. It just it just sucks because. 10 years from now, they're going to look back and they're going to say. Whoever, you know, history is written by the victor, but they're going to say that government policies made people poor. Sure. During the, this covid. And, and it's a shame. I totally agree. Um, you know, without getting too deep into it, I mean, you know, plain on its face, you can see, you can ask yourself the question, why did uh, uh, Ma and Pa hardware store have to be closed? But, um, you know, big box Home Depot is no problem. Why couldn't Ma and Pa have five people in the store at a time, space it out? Have it's all lineup? about centralization. If, if the gov centralization, if, exactly. if governments had their way, they'd be one grocery store. There'd be one yep. bank. There'd be mm -hmm. one. Why do you think it's so hard to deregulate industries? Sure. Energy, banking. Dude, I was talking to a friend who started an airline after the deregulation of the airline industry in the United States. Like, it just doesn't make sense. But mm -hmm. you look at 2008, 2009, remember during the mm -hmm. crazy financial crisis? Absolutely. You would think that these big banks get punished, right? No. What happens is the government says, hey, big banks that fucked up and made all the bad decisions. You need to go and buy out the smaller banks who you mm -hmm. fucked over mm -hmm. and then you have to have a consolidation. So now there are probably like four banks that own every other bank in probably all of North America. It's, um, you know, the 2008 reference point, I think, is sort of a great one when a lot of, uh, you know, the, the quote unquote untold stories and crypto gets sure. told. Because, you know, for me personally, I've sort of, you know, a couple of years just past the end of leaving university. And of course, during those times, the the um the zeitgeist documentaries and all of those documentaries were making their rounds on the dc plus plus university networks and whatnot and i i be back to me sort of having that interest in politics and history in general it was almost like that plus the 08 crash plus the improvements of our internet technology uh, a decade on from the dot-com sort of start um uh, it, it was a perfect storm. It was a perfect primer to ha to be in that time, like just finishing obtaining all that information about how these, you know, elephants in the room, taboo items like secret societies and central banks and all of this stuff that nobody wants to talk about. Um, but, you know, just having been primed that and then the, the, the series of events that would follow in terms of economics and who would become president and what our a political discourse would be like it, it it it's guys people like us were able to see through the lines when it came to wow this crypto is really cool like i was just so fascinated mm. by it like giddy like a toy when i was like wow what is this bitcoin and me and uh, the uh, the other co-founder of bitby um who's a brilliant uh, uh phd in mathematics adamar gonzalez um you know he just had such a attraction to it um, both mm -hmm. philosophically, ideology, 
um, ideologically. And then, of course, with that convergence of text. So, so yeah, I think um, it, it's almost like you look back at, 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 at sort of the way our governments have acted in the last 10 or 15 years. And it's not an accident that Bitcoin is now here. I would love to get a bunch of people to pledge a certain amount of money or something to start a Bitcoin social think tank where we can totally. just research and look back on the history of money, the history of Bitcoin, and really like that whole social layer of it, mathematical, philosophical layer, because I miss these conversations. And when you're like in the weeds of it and walking and talking and working, you forget that. Like sure. what you just said, like the, I fell in love with, with Bitcoin from a mathematical, but more philosophical uh, perspective. I would love to well, see I, that. You know, one, one of the things that I find interesting too is like, you know, when the whole Edward Snowden and WikiLeaks thing, and, you know, because that has had such a deep connection to, you know, privacy and freedom of information and, and whatnot. And then, you know, me, I think for my own personal, just being such a tech person and being so enthralled with the tech technological side of what the NSAs and the intelligence communities were doing, um, that it only sought to ideologically um, create a want in my head that it's like, wow, how do I get that liberty back that I've lost to this world and these systems where the mediums are all different because the medium is the internet, the medium are computer systems and networks. Exactly. And, and, and so, yeah, that it was like, it was like a light, like everybody who thought that the light went off instantly. And then it was a function of how the heck am I going to be part of this new world? Um, yeah, for sure. Yeah. Those, those speaking, talks, um, are the best. I well, love them. <laughs> speaking of new world, um, do you think, and I had to Google the term watershed cause I never really understood what it meant, but do you think like, oh, I'm going to have to also, yeah, go ahead. Like I understood what it, that it meant like a turning point, but I I didn't know what a watershed was. And apparently a watershed sure. is a ridge of land that separates two water systems. So effectively, when you're saying like something is a watershed moment or a turning point, it's when a water system that we know as the most unchanging things changes. Uh, yep. So I guess, do you think that the Coinbase IPO is like crypto's next bitcoin's netscape moment or like the watershed moment that we'll have because just because coinbase was like the first i think i think company. it's a i think it's a huge moment no doubt um i think it's almost like the end of chapter one and i maybe it's not fair to say oh that no i like that you're right that uh, it's not maybe fair to put all of the last 13 years into one chapter but if let's say it was as simple as you know, how do we get the world to wake up? And it took 13 years to get to now. And it culminates in one of the foremost um, and, and, and strongest companies and marketplaces to get out there and be in the public sphere and then have all the support of the traditional world behind it. I think it definitely has the capacity to be a new watershed moment. Um, but uh, it's hard from a technical perspective to say, does the Coinbase listing provide the same watershed moment as like, you know, Satoshi publishing the white yeah, paper point. or the, or, or the first transaction to Hal or, or anything like that. Um, and, uh, but yeah, I think, I think, I think if I put it in the context of the, 
that ends the chapter, the new chapter begins with Coinbase's listing, I think, yes, it can bring us so into the So you can have multiple new... watershed moments in your life, Correct. essentially. Correct. That, that's sort of probably where that's I'd a, put it. That's a great, that's a great response. Maybe like, yeah. if I ever write And this... I've always, and I've always like, um, you know, one of our missions at BitBuy is, uh, you know, was to provide that, that feel in Canada that Coinbase has provided to its customers in the United States and elsewhere around the world. Um, and it's definitely been a leader. I mean, despite, you know, what people say about it being premium here or this there, I mean, there's literally, um, you know, a handful of machines like that, that went that deep and that far and for that long to really be so in tune with what their mission and goal is. Uh, and they've more than succeeded in doing that. Um, and, 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 you know, influencing and, and inspiring other companies in other markets around the world to do yeah. just the same. And, yeah. and we've been told that as a flattering thing that, that we're like the Canadian Coinbase. And, you know, I, I, I bow to that when somebody says that's that. a great compliment. It's a, yeah, it's a, absolutely. I'm not going to like re bring up all the, the terms that I've been called and where I thought they were compliments, but they ended up not being, but, um, Adam Goldman, you know what, and Char Charlie, <laughs> all I have to say to whatever that is, is they were all wrong. No, I know they were, <laughs> they were, they were. Cause, cause you know what it was my watershed moment. And I'll never forget of my life was not when I was arrested. It was not when certain things happened. My watershed moment was when I decided to take control of my own future. And that meant for me, packing up all my worldly possessions that I owned in my car and, and, and leaving my family and why I had to do that was a whole nother, you know, for another podcast series even, but yeah, everyone has those watershed moments in their life that they look back on some points with positivity, negativity, or whatever it is. But I have no regrets. And it, 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 when you have no regrets, it leads a, a happy life. So I can, I hope I can wish that on everyone who listens is, is to lead a life where you have no regrets. A hundred percent. Adam. Interesting last point on that. Uh, I read also something that uh, somebody shared about sort of what was part of Jeff Bezos's success. And it was exactly that. It was the regret minimization framework where he would simply, um, you know, am I going to regret this in 10 years, five years, 20 years? Um, and, and Sometimes you have to, to make the shitty decision yep. so you don't regret it later. And it's like, absolutely. sometimes my wife and I will be in those decision moments and I'll be like, court, we have to do this because even, even uh, something so stupid, like Phil, Phil was here and our mutual friend, Phil, and yep. we had just traveled, Courtney and I would just traveled to Puerto Rico for business and we're tired and we wanted to come back to Sarasota. And Phil said, come to Miami for my birthday. And Phil and I are very, very good friends. And, um, I said, Court, I don't want to go. I'm tired. And she's like, we're going to look back. And regret this if we don't go as much as we don't want to go. Because here, Charlie, I know how hard it is for you to make friends and you have someone who wants to be your, like, who likes you for you. So, like, don't regret that. And so it's sometimes simple decisions like that. Amazing. Adam, thank you so much for coming on the show today. I really appreciate it. Charlie, it was a pleasure. Thanks for having me.